go ahead and find your spot. And if you want, uh, here in a second, you'll flip over to Joel. It's one of the last prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. You can flip and have your finger ready here in a few minutes uh, to turn to Joel. If you found your spot, if you would, please stand for the reading of Christ's word this morning. May you hear the word of Christ. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning gathered as your people, gathered to hear the words of Christ this morning. So may you speak so loudly and so audibly so that when we leave this place, we know that we have heard and we have met with Christ himself. And so, Lord, may you prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, and prepare our bodies to worship you through sermon. We offer these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is titled, Where is Your God? A Time to Refrain from Embracing. As you can see that we're focusing pretty heavily on the second part of Ecclesiastes 3.5, whereas we took some time last week to deal with a time to embrace. We're looking at the latter part, a time to refrain from embracing. And if I can give a brief summary of where we've been so far, is that you have in verse 1 of chapter 3, for everything there is a season, writes Solomon, a time for every matter under heaven. And we talked really in that first Sunday what those two different words mean. The first one, for everything there is a season, a season. This is a certain type of time in which we understand what season we're in in life and being able to live rightly in that season. So the season, as we know, hopefully, Lord willing, it's actually transitioning now from summer to fall. Amen. Yes, a lot of amen should be on that one. We're moving from summer to fall. We realize that there is a movement to a different season. And the same as it appeals to here with Ecclesiastes 3 is that we have to realize first which season of life that we're in so that we know the second part, how to act at that right time. And as we said, Ecclesiastes is a part of the wisdom literature. And wisdom, as Scripture defines it, is a right action in the right way and at the right time. Wisdom is very difficult, isn't it? Knowing what to say at the right time and in the right way. But we've been soaking in week after week of what it means to fall into these different patterns, a time to embrace, whereas this week we're looking at when is the time to refrain from embracing? Where is your God? Sort of the, the head title of this morning's sermon. The hiddenness of God is what some philosophers and theologians refer to this. Or the silence of God. 
I think we've all been somewhere in our life where we've asked that question, where are you, God? I've got friends in North Carolina right now who are dealing in a very real way with, with that question. Where are you, God? Because they're picking up pieces of their homes. They're picking up pieces of their lives that they took all of these years to collect, and now it's gone. And they struggle with that very question, where is my God in these times? Might not be a disaster, but we've been in chapters of life, seasons of life, where we've asked that very same question of where God is in this pain, in this hurt, in the most hidden parts of our lives. We try to figure out where he has been and what he's been up to all along. Especially as it relates to evil and the brokenness of the world, we expect for something to happen, don't we? Something broken is right there in front of us, and yet we hope that there will be a putting together of the broken pieces. We expect some sort of action to take place. And so we ask questions like, why has God made it so difficult to believe? Why can't we see God in our everyday lives? Where is God in this disaster? Or a favorite that I've heard um, and read about to a pretty good extent. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, then why didn't he stop this evil event from happening? That was a favorite argument for a 20th century philosopher by the name of J.L. Mackey. If he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing, then why didn't he take the time to stop this event from happening. I'm not here to give a philosophy lesson or some great theological lesson. I'm here to hopefully present Christ's words so that we can have comfort in the midst of where this chapter is in our life, this season of how to love well, how to continue seeing God and hearing God in the middle of those chapters of our lives. Because church... We must wrestle with these types of difficult questions. We cannot run away from them. We cannot run away from the question of where God is in the middle of brokenness and pain. We shouldn't. Christ certainly doesn't. The scriptures certainly don't. But there is this type of action that we're called to in the midst of these kind of situations and events. In the scriptures, you have Abraham and Sarah. They wrestle with the will of God in the middle of what seems like there's no way we're having a baby. Ninety-something? Okay. No way. We're going, no, we'll wrestle with that. And Sarah laughs, doesn't she? There's no way this is going to happen. Or Jacob himself, he wrestles with the messenger of God about the blessing Give me this blessing before you leave. This wrestling with the blessings of God. Or David. You have many psalms written by David in which he's wrestling with where God is in the middle of this situation in his life. Psalm 22, a perfect example. Where are you? Job, a perfect example of a man who has lost pretty much everything. And here he is in the middle of his circumstances where he's lost family, friends, he's lost his home and possessions, pretty much anything financially that, that involves his life, it's all gone. And here you have Job wrestling with, 
Where are you, God? Several prophets deal with this question. We'll get to Joel here in a minute. Peter even wrestles with the identity of Jesus himself as being this Messiah, the Savior of not just Israel, but the whole world. You mean you're telling me, Jesus, that you're that Messiah that we've been waiting for? Peter wrestles with that very reality. Or lastly, we might not think of it, but Jesus himself wrestles with the Father. If you remember the Garden of Gethsemane, he struggles in praying to his Father about his will being done. There is even a wrestling between the Father and the Son in the middle of this circumstance. Or even the cross. A wrestling with what is happening. The words that Jesus says in Aramaic is, Lama, Lama, Samakbaktani. Where are you, O God? Why have you forsaken me? We all need to wrestle with these questions. Because in reality, we want Jesus to show up in very real, tangible, physical ways, don't we? We wish that Jesus would just happily sit right here at the front pew. I'd be glad to stand down here while he preached. But we do want Jesus to show up in those physical ways, don't we? Why can't he just show up right here as he ate with the disciples nearly every day? Or Thomas, the doubting Thomas... Well, he touched his side after he had been resurrected, touched the holes in his hand. We want that kind of real, tangible, physical presence sometimes, don't we? Are you real? Are you here? Or even when Jesus eats with the 11 disciples after his resurrection, that kind of real physical eating of, with uh, the, the fish and eating around this fire, we want that kind of presence in front of us. So where is your God? Well, hopefully Joel will provide some comfort to us this morning. If you can, flip over to Joel 2. I'm going to read five verses, verses 12 through 17 this morning. Joel writes this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will return and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, here it is, church, where is their God? Once it comes to the history of Israel up until this point, they are awaiting a possible exile. This is in the 800s B.C. And at this time, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have been divided. 
Israel as a whole is now divided into a northern and southern kingdom. Northern kingdom we refer to as Israel. The southern kingdom we refer to as Judah. And so at this time, Joel is the prophet speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom has already been completely taken out and exiled from their country into Assyria. And so here you have Judah on edge at this point. What is going to happen to us? Are we going to be exiled as well? And so God sets apart Joel and he tells them to give this word to the people of Judah. And they have to remember at this point their history. There are curses and blessings involved with Israel. If you want to read these this afternoon, it's Deuteronomy 28 through 30. As the people are about to enter the promised land, they've been leaving all of Egypt and they've been going through 40 years in the wilderness. They're almost to the promised land. And finally, they can see it, but then there's this final sermon that Moses gives to them. And he leaves them with really two chapters and he says this. The Lord your God is faithful to his promises always. The hard part is that you will not be faithful to his promises. You're just a broken people. God is always faithful. And you won't be. And so when you're in the middle of this crisis of the curses, you have run away from your God, what happens as a consequence is that you're going to be taken out of this promised land, the one that they're about to enter, you're going to be taken out of this land by other nations. And while you're there you're going to reflect on how good it was to be in the presence of God. You're going to realize how good it was to be in your promised land. That's tough, church, to know that here you're about to inherit the land that you have been waiting 40 years for, and you're already told you're going to leave it at some point, or your children, or your children's children, because they continue to run away and disobey the voice of God. So Joel is teaching them that lesson. Remember where our ancestors were. We told you. Moses told you. Joshua told you. The priest of Aaron told you. You would run away from your God. And so here we land in Joel 2, and he's pleading with them, please turn back to Yahweh, your God. Please turn back. And he will restore us right where we're at. He won't lead us out of this place of promise, and he will keep us here. So why are they going to experience this exile? Which they do. Eventually Judah is taken out, along with northern kingdom of Israel. And in that process of being taken out of exile and into a land that's completely foreign to them in Assyria, God seems so hidden and distant from the people in the midst of their suffering and their pain. So distant. And the best illustration that I can possibly come up with, and it's one that I've kept close to me over the years, is when we get to chapters like this, we think of God as this angry, upset, probably less than holy God, for how could he do this to a people? Here's how I understand it. When our children disobey us, 
there's sometimes the consequence, or at least for our household, uh, that they are sent to another room or a corner, if you refer to that, sent to a corner. They're sent somewhere else in the home, but they're sent to that place because of their disobedience again and again and again. And it's that other room, that place that's not directly in front of us in our immediate presence, but it's in another room. We hope these things happen, ideally, that it's in this place of exile that they're quiet, that they then reflect on their choices, that they repent or apologize for their choices, and then they are restored back to us and restored maybe to a sibling. The same or similar thing is happening here once it comes to Israel. They are taken out of, of a land of promise, the immediate presence of God, and then they are sent to another land. And it's in that land that they realize the goodness and the faithfulness and the promises that God had for them in Israel. And it's in that time where they are reflecting. It's in that time that they are hopefully repenting and apologizing. And it's in that time that they realize one day we will be restored, not because of our faithfulness, but because of the faithfulness of God himself. Sometimes we have to be sent to exile in order to be quiet and to reflect on our own lives, our families' lives, our communities' lives. We sometimes are sent to spiritual exiles, church, so that we can see where we were and how we want to return to that place. So it's in that quiet, in that solitude, in that place of brokenness, in that land that's not home, that we long for it. We hope for it again. Israel's no different. They disobey, they're exiled. Place, hopefully, reflection, repentance, and, of course, restoration. In Joel, verses 22, uh, sorry, verses 12 and 13, I hope you picked up on this when I read it a minute ago, that Joel reminds Israel of who God is. Return to the Lord your God, and catch this, He is gracious, He is merciful, He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. What he's trying to draw the attention of Israel to is who God is. The goodness and the beauty and the power that he is. He wants them to long for the person of God, not for the blessings. Because we can do that. We separate sometimes the blessings that God gives us and God himself. Sometimes we run to God for the blessings he gives us, not for who he is. He's trying, Joel the prophet is trying to get them to long for the person of God, to run to him, not run to his blessings, all the goodness, those are great, but to run to the person himself and to be restored to him and nothing else. So if you question, as I have many times, that God is silent or he might be distant or maybe he's restrained 
himself or refrained himself from embracing me? Well, I'm convinced of this, church, that we can set in front of us healthy habits, Christian habits that leverage our everyday lives to experience the person of Christ. And I'm convinced that certain Christian practices can actually give us a clear vision of who God is and we can actually hear Him well in the middle of those very desperate and hard times. So let's look at those. Unconfessed sin. Something I personally struggle with. And I'm not talking about you have to go through every sin that you've committed in your life and confess it. But it, there's this sin that continues to wrap you up and prevent you from experiencing the presence of Christ. We need to be very understanding that we need to target that one sin. And we need to be able to confess it in a repentful way and apologize for it and allow Christ to work in our lives so that we can be restored and He can do something great in our hearts to put that sin to death. Such unconfessed sin needs to be seriously challenged. And speaking of challenges, uh, where we lived in Raleigh, NC State campus had what was called a Krispy Kreme challenge. You might think this is, hey, sign me up. I'm all for it. Krispy Kreme challenge seems like it's all right. But what if I told you that what you had to do is you had to eat all dozen glazed Krispy Kremes Daniel is shaking his head yes. Here's the bad part, Daniel. Then you had to run five miles. Out. Nope, don't sign me up now. Very difficult. I wouldn't even consider it a challenge. That's not, don't sign me up for it. But people flocked to this by the thousands. It was one of the hottest uh, five-mile runs in Raleigh where you ran with a dozen glazed donuts on your stomach. Now, church, is that very productive? It's not, by no means. All of that sugar and dough sitting on your stomach as you tried to run five miles, very difficult on your body, wouldn't it? And in fact, the, the home that I stay at every time I visit Raleigh is uh, Chris and Sarah Lovacek. They're a fantastic family, four boys, one girl, and they're nothing but full of love and tenderness. They're always hospitable in so many ways. And here is, again, a family with four boys, one girl. And there's this challenge between Chris and Sarah every single year that who can run to the thousandth mile first? They compete. Who can run thousand miles before the other in that year? And typically, at least Chris says, is that Sarah beats him nearly every year. But what's involved with running a thousand miles in a year is that they have to eat right. They have to take in the right amount of protein. They have to take in the right amount of nutrients. They have to hit all of those bars so that their bodies can be ready for that type of gruesome and very difficult action. But their bodies have to be prepared for it. Once it comes to understanding unconfessed sin, sometimes we take in a lot of Krispy Kreme. We, we put in our bodies the very broken things that don't produce a fullness that our life can actually have. 
as opposed to Chris and Sarah who understand that the right nutrients in their body can actually help them flourish well in their daily lives, especially when it comes to running. Joel is giving this same reminder to Israel, to the southern kingdom, is that if they continue to put in their lives all of these broken, sinful things, they will experience exile. They will not be nourished and nurtured by Christ, by God himself. So we need to set aside weekly sometimes to confess, to be able to pinpoint that these are the things that rule and reign in my life, and I need to be able to allow Christ to put them to death. And when I say confess, I mean to speak loudly to Christ. Here's what's chaining me. And Christ, you are a God of redemption, one who breaks chains. Will you put them to death? Or even, secondly, the word. A daily intake of the word. A weekly intake of the word itself. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that for God's word is living and active. The word, which is eternal itself, produces abundant life. Living things can produce life, but eternal things can produce abundant life. So once it comes to active, the word being active, it is actually, the Greek is a work, a deed done in us. Don't think of work as drudgery. Sometimes we can associate work with drudgery or toil. But this is a different work. It is a nurturing, a cultivating, a stewardship kind of work that is done in our lives so that the word can bring forth flourishing life while offering us nurture as well. And lastly, we have a time to reflect on our brokenness, a time to pull in the word to give us life in our daily and weekly patterns. Lastly, leaning into the spirit, what we call a union with Christ. And you can find this very clearly outlaid in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you want to lean into the Spirit, and I would suggest you do that, you would see that all of these work that is being produced in you, if you see that there's love being produced in your life, thank the Spirit for doing that work. If you see a great amount of patience for that day, thank the Spirit because He's producing that work. If you see joy in your life and a rejoicing thank the spirit because he's producing that kind of work in us so whether we're confessing sin we are posturing our hearts to receive christ or we're reading his revelation his word we're posturing our heads to process and to take in his word or if we're leaning into the spirit in our union with christ we're posturing our hands for action a posturing of our hearts, our hands, and our heads. So here's what I want to close today. And it's sort of giving weight to really the last part of the sermon in understanding that we are meant to be a people, not of just prayer, where we posture our hearts, but we take in that word, we posture our heads, but we also get ready to posture our hands for the work that Christ has set before us. So I'm going to lead us through five brief prayers in 
asking Christ to begin this work in our lives, that we realize He does not refrain from embracing us, that He has brought us out of a spiritual exile and brought us into union with the Father through His sacrifice and through His Spirit. And so what I want to invite us to this morning is just a brief time of prayer in which we reflect on how we can be God's people with our hearts, our heads, and our hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder of your word this morning that you do sometimes place us into spiritual exiles. You put us in places where we need that quiet. We need that time of reflection. We need that time of repentance. But yet, we might seem like you're so distant, but in reality, you're not far at all. And just like a father to his child, they're in the same home. Even though they disobeyed, they're in another room. They're just in the next room. And so, Lord, this morning we come to you, hopefully in quiet, so that we can posture our hearts and our heads to be ready to give action, Christian action with our hands. And so, Lord, I lead us this morning in these prayers. First, we pray for ourselves. There's nothing selfish about that, that we realize that sometimes we run away from you. Oftentimes, we do not have sincere hearts and pure hearts as we approach you. But Lord, in this quiet, we come before you with sincere and pure hearts. And Lord, may we not lean on our own understanding, but ultimately the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. And Lord, we, may we also not build kingdoms to our names, but only to Christ. So, Lord, forgive us from running from your embrace. But also thank you for bringing us back from our many spiritual exiles. Secondly, Father, we pray for our neighbors. And that could be the person that lives right next to us or right down the road or the person that we meet in the grocery store. For these are our neighbors. And as we picture and think of our neighbors in our minds... Lord, we ask that you would bless them and you would bless them wildly. And more importantly, show us how we can be a part of that blessing. And thirdly, we, we pray for our family. The ones that we love, the ones that we share blood with. Lord, we, we pray for them. We picture them in our minds and we think of them and Father, we ask that you would bless them and you would bless them wildly. And Lord, may you show us how we can be a part of that blessing. And fourthly, Christ, as you have invited us, as well as your Apostle Paul, you have taught us to pray for our enemies. Those are sometimes the most difficult to pray for. But as Paul reminds us, we are not to heap burning coals on their heads, but rather to serve them with cool drink. And so with our enemies pictured in our minds, may we think of them. 
And we offer this prayer that you would bless them and bless them widely and to show us how we can be a part of that blessing. And lastly, Lord, we pray for our world. And that can be world leaders. They can be leaders of every stature. That can be for people that we will meet at some point in this week that we have no relationship to, a complete stranger. We pray for our broken yet beautiful world and that you would bless this world wildly. And most importantly, Lord, may you show us how we can be a part of that blessing. Father, we thank you for this time of gathering this morning to be able to hear from your word, but also to pray from your word so that we can be a people of your word. We offer these things in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, yes.